Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Rock on Tours podcast. I'm Gary Kemp. And I'm Guy Pratt. And each week we're going to be in the studio, on the road or backstage with an artist we know, love, respect or owe money to. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> so, um, what do I know about you, Guy? Um, well, we met uh, when we were both in Run For Your Wife at the Eastbourne Winter Gardens <laughs> in 1973. Arthur Lowe was amazing, wasn't he? But in actuality, um, he's a bass player, this guy. I first met you at some TV we were doing? in Bud- It was in Budapest. In, in Budapest. Who were you we playing was, for? I was playing for Ice House. You, of course, were Spandau Ballet was, at yeah. the time. All and five of them. All five of them, yeah. And, um, uh, yeah, and it was a mad night ensued. And we, and then, well, we kind of knew, we were, you know, on the similar sort of circuit. But then I suppose we kind of got close when I was asked to come and help you put together your solo album. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. about 95, yeah. But just, I'm just, 93, I'm just going to talk about you for a second and just say oh. what a, what a bass player you are and what you've done. So Ice House, and then of course in, in about, in the, in the late 80s, 87? 87. You, uh, when Roger Waters uh, quit the band, Pink Floyd, and you took over on bass and toured with them for big, two massive tours, right? Yeah, two, yeah, two massive tours. Well, yeah, it was... Yes, momentary lapse of reason. Momentary lapse of reason. Yeah, and and I did actually play on on um, on albums as well. So I, I'm I'm known as the touring bassist, but I did actually division bell. Studio, yeah, I played the division bell. And of course, you played with Madonna and Michael Jackson and Roxy Music, and uh, well, you know, it's not a bad CV, is it? No, it's not a bad CV. No, it's you know, it's the great and the near great. I've known them all. Uh, and you, Gary, of course, uh, sort of absolute founding father, leading light of the new romantic movement uh, oh, with yes. Spandau Ballet, uh, and of course one of the sort of one of the people who defined the eighties, uh, and also have managed to marry that with a very successful acting career. Um, I've seen you pummel many a stage yep. uh, for everything from I suppose it started with uh, you doing the Craze movie, yeah. but then since then you've done a lot of. Right, I've seen you. Well, of course, the bodyguard, uh, and very good in art. That play art, I oh, remember. Jasmine Razor. Yeah, and uh, recently the the Jamie Lloyd Harold Pinter yeah. revival at the Harold Pinter Theatre. Yeah, I, I enjoyed doing that. But we are now in a band together. Aren't we? we are in a band together. We're fronting a band. That's the funny thing. We're actually singing. Singing, yes. Yeah, yes. In um, singing a band, which according to the Daily Mail has no frontman, and uh, <laughs> because it has two. <laughs> and and it's Nick Mason's source full of secrets. It and, is Nick Mason's source full of secrets, which leads us on nicely to the person we're going to be talking to in our first podcast, which is the great Nick Mason, drummer of Pink Floyd, and uh, and all round wonderful human being. Uh, Nick Mason, here you are. Thank you very much. That's what I call an intro. We were going to say thanks for coming, but actually we're in your office, so. Um... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm, thanks for showing up. <laughs> so we want to talk a bit about this band, but I think also and the beginnings of this band, Source Full of Secrets, and why you did it and, and how it's been going. 
but also probably parallel that a little bit with uh, those early days of Pink Floyd and, and what it was like when you were getting together with that lot. So let's talk about that, that first day in our rehearsal room, first of all. It was uh, why you did it. Um, why did I do it? I suppose I, I'd got to the point where I really felt it was time to... Uh, that I'd like to go and actually play some more. You know, for 20-odd years I'd been semi-retired, which meant that I'd come on and play a cowbell for one track for something or do some... Um, Tambourine at the O2. That's exactly that. And um, the timing was right. Uh, it, the idea, I think we we'll all agree, was Lee Harris, who... Uh, suggested that this would be a good idea and he quite rightly worked out that if he'd come direct to me I'd have probably thought who's this madman but he went to Guy and um, suggested and then Guy said you really ought to have a look at this and I thought well if Guy's interested then maybe it would work and so the concept was the early years yeah I think I I sort of could visualise it working and, yeah. Um, so it became a case of uh, that we had three. What I can't remember is quite how you heard about it or joined. Or how in. I got involved, or why on earth you asked me? <laughs> how did that? Happen? I don't think I we did because it was I was late to the to that meeting. I mean, to be um, to be honest, when Lee came, but I never. I thought, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I never in a million years was this wasn't going to happen. It was never going to happen. And, and it, basically, because Lee was so insistent, and Lee is such a lovely, enthusiastic chap, and I adore him. And, and he now has played, he plays guitar in the band. He now, has, now plays guitar in the band, yeah. How long remains to be seen? But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, and I just thought, well, it was kind of partly, and you know, I, I knew he was going mad in, in a field in the middle of France. Uh, I'm sorry, he, he lives in France. He wasn't going mad in a field in the middle. Yeah. And uh, was desperate. And it was also, you know, because he'd been to see me playing with David Gilmore, because we'd been through on tour twice in a year. And... And I said, well, I'll put it, I said, write it up and I'll put it to Nick. But I, it, it never actually occurred to me that it was, a, a, that you agreed to have the meeting was was like, oh, all right then. I thought, and then it was just like, well, of course Nick's having the meeting. He's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you must have been still pretty, I mean, obviously I got involved then and then and then Don Beacon got involved um, on keyboards. That all came out of the first meeting, but yeah, yeah. I can't remember how. No, I was obviously I. thrilled at the idea and it, it, of Gary, but, it, but is, it was my idea. I mean, the interesting thing is that this is really old school that you put a band together with like-minded people. There were no auditions, and that's quite. When you look back on the sort of the great history of bands and so on, people didn't do auditions. You know, you just put a, a, a band together by someone had a guitar and someone else was going to do this or that. People you knew. And it was in in that respect. This was exactly like that. There was never a choice. Yeah. And in fact, we it was worked out. <laughs> that was out. never a choice. That's great. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. You were the only bass player. <laughs> the only one we knew. Fine. Um, I mean, I think the thing is, is, is as the drummer, to, for you to go out and do the entire Pink Floyd catalogue, which, you know, as far as Roger and David are concerned, that, inc- that means about 10 session players on stage doing Comfortably Numb, doing all those, those purple tunes and guitar solos. I think this, to you, excited you, I hope, because it wasn't about a bunch of session players and trying to go through that catalogue again when there are so many tribute acts out there. It was about trying to put something together that was much more organic and our own, if you like. Yeah, and I think uh, also that sense that we could, I 
use the term mess about a bit with the music, yeah. that we're not actually under the gun to do the most perfect rendition of, of um, comfortably numb. Yeah. usually is. I don't think you have to do it with 10 uh, session players on stage, but you sort of get drawn into that type of production, you know, once you're doing a certain scale. You yeah, always well, think you need some backing singers and a brass player. Oh yeah, I mean, because this is the first time I've. I mean, this that you. It feels like I'm in a band with you. Whereas, I mean, everything we've done before, you and I were a quantifiable part, <laughs> like of a jigsaw of a huge thing, which where you had lights and sound and all sorts of stuff, which was just as important. And it was we were literally just a component of that. It mm. wasn't being in a band, yeah. really, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it was brilliant. It was fantastic with those kind of contributions that you can make in rehearsals and yeah, exactly. Yeah, changes on well, yeah, stage. Or the, yeah, the fact that it's a ship that can actually be steered can actually you know yeah. move. Yeah, that first day in rehearsals, obviously there's only five of us. We 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 knew we were going to look at Sid stuff. You know, we how nervous were you, Nick? Not really were you concerned. I don't know. Funnily enough, I wasn't. Um, were you surprised then? Yeah, I think I was surprised. I thought, oh, yeah, this this sort of works. But, uh, no, there was a very... It was uh, quite an easy slide into it. Because to think. paint a picture, you know, it wasn't... It was a tiny little rehearsal room we yeah. decided to go for. You said, I just just rent the kit in the studio, which was a small bass drum, a tom and a snare. You know, it was something really simple. You know, we all brought in our, our small rigs, if you like. You know, no road crew. Yeah, that so, was short-lived, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, that was. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I was nervous, you know, singing Sid's Purple, you know, one, you know, these amazing tunes, Arnold Lane or Emily play. I can't remember what we did early on, but, uh, you know, I was very nervous at what you might think of how we were approaching the tunes together. Well, you have to remember that when we did these things originally, we weren't very good. I mean, it, the, it's not as that... It, it's really curious to look back. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good thing, at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. <laughs> you know, and yeah. we laughed. Most of that was actually, stunned. <laughs> we laugh, but actually, it, okay, it was 100 hours, but it certainly wasn't 1,000 hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but, so it, it was really taking something that had been done... It was very well produced. Joe Boyd did a great job on on those original pieces and, sure. and sort of moved them up a notch or two. But it wasn't as though we were trying to do something by, I don't know, Toto or... You uh, didn't have your Hamburg or Berlin. Something difficult. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But then also, because I remember thinking, the thing of being in this, you know, really crappy little rehearsal room and think, oh my God, what's this going to be like for Nick coming in here? But the funny thing is, it was even certainly, maybe even further, but I know up to even Wish You Were Here was written in a crappy rehearsal room, right? Yeah. You were still working like that. And uh, a lot for a long time. I'm a great believer in that sort of uh, small scale kickoff. Um, because yeah. apart from anything else, you can spend far too long sort of working out. If I'd brought the the big kit down you know you spend the whole day more or less fiddling around with them yeah. setting up each tom-tom or whatever all you really want to know is whether you like working together and whether the thing actually sounds like it of course it can be rehearsed further but you you immediately get some sense of whether it works or not you, you weren't nervous about telling roger or david did you tell them did you did you feel that you needed to get their 
blessing on I this? didn't feel I had to tell them that, <laughs> but uh, I was thinking of going to a small rehearsal room. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I thought once we were touring or once we were playing, it was good manners. But it's not as though they ring me up and say, Hi, sure. Nick, I'm heading off on another world tour. Sure. Uh, it's, it's always been understood that everyone should just be allowed to get on with whatever they want to do. But then after a while, we ended up with the friends and family, didn't we? Which was our first sort of That's reveal. Right, yeah. Yeah. Invited a load of mates down and some people we knew and uh, and decided like a to baby set up. shower. A baby shower. <laughs> we were pregnant with yeah, old songs, weren't we? And uh, how many did we have at that point? Because I'm trying. It was because the first thing we did was Interstellar Overdrive, wasn't it? Was it? I think it was. Wow. I think and and, I, I, and yes, what makes right. it is is once we'd done the kind of four six whatever however many times around the riff. And then it goes into the sort of improvised bit. What did we do? <laughs> yeah, because the weird thing about it on the record is it's completely atonal. I think what we did is we listened to a lot of versions, didn't we? From yeah. We listened to a live version, yeah. various live versions from back in the 60s. And we were really fascinated by this atonal breakdown. I mean, it, how wild was that back in the 60s to do, yeah. to do that sort of the, stuff? Who were you copying? We did you, have well, the guide. Jazz, wasn't it? it was, uh, mm. I, I, I don't know if it was you, but someone said one, one of my... It was a great comment about that was how... Because it's the same format as a jazz song where you do like sort of 16 bars or something and then everyone solos and then you do 16 bars riff and then you're out. But this is the everyone soloing in a different key. I think key. it was you who yeah. said... No, I know, but it was... Whereas the jazz musicians used to do that because it was... The, great way to express what fantastic musicians they were whereas with the early pink floyd it was just showing quite the opposite yeah exactly. <laughs> but where did you get it all that that kind of eternal stuff and how did i think that must have been sid actually sid. Who, who originally did the sort of breakdown of the concept uh, because it, it, you're right in a way looking back to 1967 apart from a few really curious sort of singles, everyone was still working on this two-and-a-half, three-minute piece of length for any song in order to get radio plays. So this yeah. sudden change into something completely different, which, which probably came from... Uh, was probably directed by being in um, playing places like UFO and, and those sort of underground where clubs or venues where yeah, people club expected on, something Sorry, a club different. on Court Road, wasn't it, back in the, the 1960s, yeah. run by Joe Boyd. And Hoppy, John Hopkins. So it was interesting for us to do that as a first number, wasn't it? Because it gave us the freedom in that middle section, the whole breakdown of, uh, of weird stuff, of exploring what we could do and not feeling tied to the original records, you know, and yeah. coming up with our own stuff with echo units and delays. And uh, and, and I, I think that was actually kind of set us free right from the, right yeah. from the get-go, wasn't it? The funny thing is, of course, now it's become much more... Str- I mean, it's, I think we, we basically have a middle section that's based on sort of three bits of three different live yeah. versions. It's and then, and it, you, you have a bit of a structure because you have to. Yeah. But it's also now a springboard for musical gags about either someone who's in the audience or the town that we're in. Yeah. <laughs> I think so something to look out for, trivia fans, if you're at a gig. I think the most precious thing, really, was 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 doing Sid, really, and uh, and singing his songs. That was... There's, there's such a following out there for Sid and, you know myth and legend that's built around him mm. and uh, I almost can't believe you actually sat in the room with him you know it's almost like he didn't exist I mean the first time I ever heard a Sid song was I have to say it was David Bowie doing really? doing yeah. Emily play yeah. you yeah. know that was my version you know and in a way Bowie was a kind of my way into singing Sid you know because 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 yeah. so he was a 
he was so influenced by him. Just just tell us a bit about him. What was he like? And when you when well, uh, I of of all the band, I think I probably knew Sid the least because. Uh, Roger, in particular, had known Sid in Cambridge and had more or less grown up with him. Uh, and the same with David. Hmm? Was he scary? No, absolutely not. He was absolutely delightful. The, the problem was that over a period of a year, he became less and less uh, in charge of himself, I suppose. I mean, there is still no clear understanding of what went wrong or what what happened and I think there are two or three things that may be combined almost certainly there was an LSD problem uh, in which he had bad trips and instead of thinking this isn't working for me he carried on trying for a breakthrough well David said that he was he, he kind of he was spiked a lot well, he might have been you know, there's, there's, because there was a whole uh, people wanted because there was disciples. A, there was a whole th- yeah, but there was a whole thing of madness. But the whole R. D. Lang thing at the time, the whole ethos of mad- madness was very fashionable, and people kind of liked the idea of sending Sid a bit mad. And that you know, the, every, we're talking about kids. Everyone was yeah. kids, right? Yeah. And just not yeah. knowing what they were playing with. Yeah. Well, that's that's highly possible. And there's now belief that there was a particular uh, version of LSD called STP which was 10 times stronger than a regular never dose. Heard, this is a this is a new one that uh, um, the info was sent to me by Jenny Spires I think. Oh, who was an ex-girlfriend of Sid's. Yeah. Um, it was within, within the last 2 years. So that's a, a, another element to the story. But the other thing is which was the Ronnie Lang thing. Uh, it, Roger went to see him to talk about Sid and apparently um, He was a psychotherapist, right? Yeah. Well, he went to see RD Lang. Yeah. Oh wow. And um, talked to him about Sid, and uh, apparently Ronnie Lang said to Roger, "Well, you know, maybe he's not the mad one. Maybe you are." Meaning that actually, uh, so actually, 60s. Sid had maybe worked yeah. out that he really didn't want to be in a band and go on the road. He wanted to be a painter, which is what right. he'd originally mm-hmm. come to London to do. And we, of course, thought that anyone who didn't want to be in a band was clearly insane. Well, yeah, I remember you yeah. saying that because, of course, the whole concept of being a rock star had literally only just been invented, right? Only, you know, it's the Beatles. It was like yeah. sort of only been around for three or four years. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. The idea that anyone would not want that is was inconceivable. Yeah. No, you, yes. You know, would you like, how, do you, how do you tell anyone? Actually, no, thanks. No, yeah, would I'm, I'm, would I'm, you like I'm, to win the pools? No, thank you. Yeah. But I suppose, in a way, did you, was it encouraged because his lyrics were so out there and the thought that maybe he, he writes best on acid? No. I, well, certainly. Well, not I f- don't think from the band's point of view. Because I don't. <sighs> this is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I've no, I mean, again, I, I wouldn't want to paint myself as the world's great expert on Sid. I've no idea yeah. which songs were or weren't mm-hmm. written. What I find about those songs, which is kind of odd, is that they're, they're sort of... They're quite ramshackle at times. I mean, when we were doing, say, Vegetable Man Bike, for example, you know that some sometimes it's always a three four bar here, isn't it? Or it's a three and a half bar. Yeah, no, but it isn't. It's just he's. It's because he's not thinking about that. He's writing purely from the vocal, and so to him, as long as he has, you know, you have a, a line that's vaguely similar, that's similar enough to be in the same song. And that's the kind of, that's the way he, George Harrison writes like that sometimes, where you're not really thinking about time. You know, he, he's not thinking about the band. It's, you're just not thinking about the yeah. band. It's just, and there's a lot of old. And Stream of consciousness, really. Yeah, but it's also a way, there's a lot of, uh, I remember David once showed me this brilliant thing of how with old blues singers, how if there isn't a band, there's your, your time constraints are completely different. It's only when you have to start thinking about the people that you really have to worry about being in time yeah. or being in certain But it's age. funny enough because, because out of all of the Floyd stuff that we do, Sid stuff is the stuff we follow to the beat. To the absolute. Mm. Well, we have to, yeah, because we're both singing it. And, and it's the thing I've said before, what's incredibly impressive about Nick is the fact that we have to work our asses off just to be on top of this. You sail through it like it's yeah. the most straightforward, <laughs> kind of like it's take me home country road. Or well, something. it's in his DNA, isn't it? It, it, it's, it probably says early, you know, Sid Barrett, but if you cut you open in a way, is that, that sort of, that's part of how you started off as a musician, listening yeah. to him? I guess so. I mean, I, it's one of those curious things that you don't really think about you can and uh, there is this mixture when we're on stage you know between let's say Arnold Lane which is very specifically mm-hmm. as you say played you know played to the record and, and follows the, the 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 process completely yeah so we did our first gig didn't we at Dingwalls and that was a bit of a reveal as well and that was quite terrifying did, did we was that the first one or I thought we did a rather did we no we did I thought we did the the, ha- the Half Moon and Putney. No. Then we went to Dingwalls. Then we Dingwalls went was back the first. to Putney. Dingwalls was the first. I don't know how you mean. Wait, wait. No, no, Dingwalls was the first. Dingwalls was the first. Then we did Then we did four. Been, but yes, you have been there. We, I just wanted to add one thing before we go to that. Is because the whole the Floyd thing was based out of these two social groups, one from the Poly and then one from Cambridge. So did you go to Cambridge much? Did you have to... Was there a... It's a real cross-pollination there. Do you have to a, hang out in Cambridge? A little bit, but not that much. But I used to go to Cambridge with Roger. We'd drive up in his mother's car and uh, go and stay at um, his place. And there was a Cambridge scene, weekends. wasn't there? And, yeah, but it was a sort of slightly odd scene in a way <coughs> because it was completely divorced from the, uh, from the colleges. It, this was kids who were locals. Right. And in fact, um, they'd all been to school in Cambridge. But interestingly, but what were the other bands? Hmm? There was other bands from Cambridge at the time. Was it Soft Machine was there? Was it? Well, no. I don't think they were, were, Cambridge. were the other No, Soft Machine were from Canterbury. Although there was a bleep, I remember Richard Ayres was at Cambridge and he got to know Storm and everyone. Quite so there was there was a little bit of a bleed there. But, uh, but I think he but Richard said he he got was perceived very much as straight. 
if you're at the if you were at Cambridge, you were you were the straight you know the straights. So they were never really crossed over. But I, I remember being quite nervous at that first Ingalls show. You know, this was the reveal proper. You know, and every a lot of lot of old psych heads had turned up. I mean, for me, the real difference was seeing an audience that was ninety percent blokes. And I'd, I'd never <laughs> seen that before. I'm used to seeing an audience of ninety percent women, probably. But uh, you know, you realise how I'm being heckled by everyone from Dom's local. <laughs> for some for some reason, the Floyd more than any other band I know. I don't we're not being disparaging about Floyd fans. But it attracts people no, who are very, very into detail, right? Yes. Into how the sound is crafted. I mean, I'd never had anyone taking pictures of just my pedal board before, <laughs> you know, but that's what they were interested in. Yeah. You know, or, or binoculars, seeing what settings you have. And I know the yeah. greatest compliment I ever got when it was, it took about a year of playing with you guys to get it, was when someone said to me, you've got good tone. How'd you get it? You know, which means, you know, the sound of the guitar. Yeah. But, um, oh, really? Not the makeup. <laughs> Flesh tone, yes. <laughs> um, but I think that was 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 quite nerve-wracking, you know, how was this going to go? And I mean, I think, you know, we, obviously we had... We were very woefully under-rehearsed as well, if we're yeah. honest. Yeah, if, but we had... Know, which, we, which was right, which was right for that, yeah. I think. But we had the Pink Floyd... We also um, couldn't see because we had all these projectors at eye, at eye level, which is... Yeah. I know, and also, I, mean, I should point out, that's the first time, apart from sort of a couple of birthday parties, uh, one funeral and a couple of charity things, that I've ever actually played with Nick on his own. Nick, has always, yeah. there's always been a percussionist or something, which is... And this is basically the first time I've ever known Nick play without a net. Yeah. But Nick has a great style, and I remember thinking about this when I was when I was back when I was about fourteen. I went, I first saw Floyd at, at Wembley Empire Pool, and I know from the records as well. Your style is, I mean, you have this beautiful sort of lolloping roll on a on a tom through the toms, that, and 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 if I try and follow you, then I'm in trouble, right? But so, but but if but when you do come and land, always just that slight way after the beat, that's your style, and it's wonderful, and it's very Floyd. And it, it's kind of like, I don't know, there's a, there's a sort of, a, I don't know, a kind of comfort about it that I, I, I think works. Well, it's from, not frantic from, rock and roll like Ginger Baker or, no, or some of no, those. It's great. I've, no, I've, I've always felt very comfortable with Nick. Because yeah. it, certainly for Pink Floyd, it's just that thing of sitting in the, in the right place where it's, you know, you can, you can be too precise. You can be too forward on it. It's always been a view of the English drummers that they always just hold it back a fraction and the Americans tend to be yeah oh is that right on it. yeah so who was your influence as a drummer growing up well funnily enough Ginger Baker of course right which is why you have two drum bass <laughs> drums absolutely over the, over the completely it's also why it's so incredibly violent in the dressing room <laughs> 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 like going back to that first game did you think we'd end up touring America and Europe and putting no, on a proper but show I, I'll tell you what was interesting for me was the moment when we actually kicked off the first literally the first few bars of whatever it was and I thought yeah. I've been here before and it was very very similar to something to being there in 1967 yeah. and feeling you know there's a band I can see in this case it's Dom not Rick and you and Guy and so on yeah. that um, obviously I couldn't see Lee because he's <laughs> he's a small titchy man yes <laughs> no, don't say um, that it was extraordinary. It was a return to something I hadn't 
seen for 50 years. But it's funny you say that because uh, I know there's someone in the audience that night who was at UFO and saw your early gigs and was gobsmacked at how it made him feel. It, it took him all the way back there. And I think it might have had something to do with our light show as well. The kind of music. I mean, you know, Roger and David don't do those early those early those early songs do they they don't well, attempt that I'd been set in amber I'd not actually <laughs> progressed as a drummer from <laughs> September 1967 to present day so then we ended up going we did we expanded the show got a bigger light show and, yeah. and took it across Europe and then America and, and I'm, for me you know one of the highlights was, was, was Roger coming on stage in New York mm-hmm. you know and that was quite a, a powerful thing wasn't it when he came on and did yeah. uh, set the controls for the heart of the sun <laughs> that's very good with us and uh, t- remember him coming on telling the story of how Pink Floyd first arrived in New York but he had all this delay and getting it wrong voice. getting and it wrong leaving right <laughs> but <laughs> he had all this right. delay lay on his voice and as he started to talk it sounded totally demonic didn't it you know but uh, and and then of course now we've got a we've got we actually got a record coming out we have yeah talk about the record a bit nick promote it for us <laughs> would you well i think we were really lucky i think we made some good decisions so we delayed actually recording a live show until well we had done a year plus of actually yeah. working on it um, uh, we recorded it at the Roundhouse, which I think was a great venue because it's actually where Pink Floyd did their very first real gig on the back of a cart, wow. and it was just a, an earth floor. Um, and I th- we were lucky in that we uh, recorded over two days, but the, the, the main recording was done on the best night. And I think yeah. we all came off and we knew that we'd got it right and because there's nothing like being oh if only we'd done that last night sure. if only we'd done this and that and we filmed it as well for the dvd yeah. and, uh, yeah. and, and, and a, a, a double album or whatever you call it these days oh yes whatever they a call string it. of tracks well, well it's like no because i what i love is listening to it is thinking oh god I, oh i did that that oh, i don't usually do that and suddenly realize, actually no that's that's the joy of of actually whatever show of ours you record there'll be a load of stuff you go, oh, I didn't do that that night. Oh, I didn't do that. Oh, I only, yeah. you know, because it is genuinely different every night. But yeah, we do improvise a lot of the breakdown stuff and Interstellar, of course, and, yeah. and set the controls. Yeah, just little things. But Nick, so how, um, with that, so how has touring changed for you, would you say, doing, <laughs> like, doing this? Well, it's um, gone backwards horribly, you know, last... Because you basically, <laughs> the irony, because you kind of went sort of straight from the transit, or, or well, I believe the band actually had a Rolls Royce, didn't you? We, we had thing, a all band, English bands who clearly had no money, weren't doing anything, always had a Rolls Royce they in did. the 60s. What was well, that? Drove them they into were, swimming pools. But, yeah. but you went straight from the Rolls Royce, well, or the, they were know, very the transit, to the priced. plane. You know, you you never did the bus, really, did you? No, we never did the bus, actually. <laughs> and so it's an opportunity to catch up. I mean, it's, it's the only catch up on your sleep. I did one. I think I did one leg of a tour uh, on a, on a tour bus, and just one ride, really, just to see what it was like. I mean, I think this is what's been extraordinary for me. I've, I've never really I've done... We did a few overnighters, didn't we? And I've never done any overnighters. I don't think... I, I always tried to avoid them in the old days. But I think, you know, if Nick Mason could do it, exactly. I could do it. And it's been quite comfortable. And I think the repartee amongst us all is really nice. It's a, That's what I like about it. But but it's touring is different because it's a smaller band, surely. There's, there's, oh, God, yes. Yeah. You're yeah, the front um, man. Well, a fr- uh, front man at the back. It's Your a name is above the title. Position. Yes, there is that. Uh, no, I've, I've really enjoyed it because it's, first of all, 
if you haven't toured for a while, you forget what's really good about touring. What's good about touring is lack of responsibility. Yeah. When you're grown up and you've got children and all the rest of it, uh, you know, home life revolves around doing quite a lot. Yes. And actually suddenly you're back to about eight years old. There's someone to carry everything for you, carry carry you if you're feeling weak. Well, you can. You're right. Well, we should point out though, actually, how, like the first on the first European tour we did, we didn't even have a tour manager. That's true. I mean, we were really relying on the fact that we were hopefully grown ups by now and get ourselves in and out of hotels. But we did have a security man. Well, security, yes, <laughs> yes, it was Nick needed quite obviously. Um, the thing is, and you can understand why some people in rock music, I mean, who am I thinking of? Bob Dylan, for example, do not stop touring because you become slightly institutionalized. Completely yeah. institutionalized. I mean, yeah. and now, given the age of rock and roll, it's kind of the new old people's home, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we just, you know, you don't have tour managers, you just have carers on the road. Yeah, actually, it's, it, the, 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 the switch to cruises is coming very soon. There are rock tours. Yes, did so. Last of the Summer Wine, the musical. <laughs> and we're going on again, aren't we? We it are. More. This, uh, this that's, year that's, back out bigger tour yeah yeah no I think uh, playing a, different there's songs there's a real well. appetite for it well certainly adding to the repertoire yeah adding to the repertoire I think when you know doing echoes I hope well we're actually not rehearsed any of this yet have we we'll no we haven't so. no yeah exactly we'll, hopefully yeah we, we all works um, and also well what's quite dear to my heart and I think it's, um, because is uh, that we're playing the Brighton Dome because that was where, in November 1972, you first played uh, what was then called Eclipse, a piece for assorted lunatics, which was then, you know, released as Dark Side of the Moon in the next year. And it's quite nice because if you go to the Dome in Brighton, it's got two huge moments in its musical history, which says which is the per- first performance of Eclipse and ABBA winning the Eurovision Song Contest in 1974. Uh. And I'm sure they're related. <laughs> I, I know it's beyond our remit, really, Dark Side of the Moon, but doing Eclipse in those early days, when you, because in those days, people went out and played new albums before they came out. I mean, yeah. no one would Well, that was, you basically that. wrote it on the road, didn't yeah. you? Well, Did you have a sense then, so when you were doing it, that this was something way better, if you like, or, or beyond, or would have that kind of success? Um, no. Uh, no one could have foreseen what actually happened in terms mm. of the success of the record. Uh, and I think the, the success of the record was down to a whole lot of add-ons, actually, that came about through uh, through the recording process. And that includes it becoming a, a very high standard of engineering uh, so that it became a bit of a test record. Um, the record company themselves pulled themselves together. You know, it's very easy to blame record companies for everything. But in this case, Basker Menon was the new president of Capital. And he said, I'm going to make this record happen, which previously had not ha- been the case. Yeah. And so, and that makes a difference. But also, wasn't it, oh, I don't know if this is going to but that it was kind of when sort of high quality headphones first appeared on the market around then. That might, might have had something to do with it. But certainly people were much more interested in hi-fi at home. Yeah. You know, it's that's sort of gone. Well, quad, do you remember? Yes. Quad and... Well, all the speakers, whereas now people are so used to just using relatively small scale. I think where the album succeeded is 
there were kind of two markets going on, weren't there? There was always the, the singles market and the and the pop market, if you like. You know, short five six minutes. Five five minute songs, four minute songs. Bohemian Rhapsody, maybe. <laughs> but, then, well, but then, but then there was the the prog market as well with elongated stuff. You know, just people taking up whole sides. And I think Dark Side combined the two, didn't it? There was still, even though there was a sense of concept about it, uh, and well, and, no, it wasn't on the radio though, because you lived in two worlds. But they were still didn't short track. Yeah, no, that's, but you know what I mean. You had that world where there was there was Bowie and T Rex and stuff that you'd hear on the radio, and there was that whole world of ba- the bands you loved. Who you know, Floyd Zeppelin, all that stuff, which you assumed were never going to be part of your daily life. Yeah. They were never going to. They weren't in the newspapers. They weren't on the radio. You know, it was a whole other other well, world. They it, were, was, it was kind of cooler to be in that world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to sort of think back to exactly how it operated then. But yeah. first of all, music was more important anyway because there weren't games. Hollywood yeah. was, I think, had sort of dropped back a bit and so I mean the Beatles were were just the biggest thing ever and for four or five years that that was how it was and um, well we we talked earlier you know what was the point at which uh, you paid more for a uh, for a ticket than for a record yeah that's that's such Um, a great point because it it was a as I say a different world you the record was forever the gig was ephemeral but to be that big you were selling to more people than just the sort of frog rock kind sure. of crowd, if you like. It yeah. had to really spill over. It was there was a commerciality about it at the same time, wasn't there? I mean, you know, there's, there's yeah, com- money was. Did money come out as a single at one point? Not to the, not like an album did. You know, an album was sort of ten times as much, really, because yeah. in terms of cost and and um, the amount of material on it was the equivalent of ten singles, wasn't it? So, uh, so Nick. <laughs> as you're in charge where are we going ah, on this tour yes unfortunately I can't remember um, <laughs> but I have a route map it's a very know, extensive UK tour isn't it yeah, which is well, really nice which is certainly something I haven't done you've probably done the most you know I haven't done that sort of we don't, I haven't played those kind of venues you know we're doing theatres all over uh, um, the, the UK aren't we and I, I haven't been to most of those places uh, in, in the Albert Hall of course which yes, is we've, we've sort of moved up from the Roundhouse to the Albert Hall, if that's a move. And, uh, and, uh, I think they're... I looking think forward to that. But uh, it's always fun to do, as the guy was talking about Brighton, you know, maybe to do places that you have done in the past. And yeah, theatres occasionally are the same, exactly the same venue. And that's, well, that's been one of our gags, you're gonna have a, Yeah, exactly, because we, you know, Lee is the professor and he always comes up with the facts from the last time he played. But it's good, because that, that's one thing I'm looking forward to, because there's going to be so many stories you're gonna, that are going to come to you. Mm. When we get to Norwich doing the program, we did a that's of- a funny thing. Actually, I'd like to say what is fascinating is, is having spent all these years with Pink Floyd, which is just this world of the mega artiste, and and um, and how. But there's no real mention of prog. Where you're above and beyond anything. And the great thing with this, because of the sort of tidy size of this, how we've been sort of drawn into this fa- fabulously resurgent world of prog, like going to the prog awards. You sort of bumping into Steve Hillage for the first time oh, in 30 years, wonderful. stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, that that's a really nice reconnection. Yeah, yeah. No, and seeing, uh, you know, seeing King Crimson and actually, yeah, having some sort of uh, sense of who else is out there and what they're doing. I mean, we got a bit of a tip of the hat from them, I must say. They were, they like, which is quite, a, yeah, because yeah. it, it is quite f- funny having come from Floyd, where, where you bow to no man. Now we're kind of, um, 
sort of King Crimson are the gods of the world we're in. I mean, what's, what's extraordinary is it just keeps going, isn't it? I remember growing up, you know, and everyone was shocked that Mick Jagger was 30 and uh, surely he couldn't continue. And then and then those years just keep going and they just keep everyone... You, and and you're, we're all continuing and hopefully to, you know, we will do. But it's, I think, my theory is that if, if you're a sort of a 74-year-old actor, you go on stage and play a 74-year-old character. If you're a 74-year-old rock pop star you go on stage and play a 24 year old and yeah. it feels like that doesn't it yeah, yeah they're, they're so jealous because basically we're still doing Hamlet <laughs> <laughs> exactly listen thank you Nick we uh, for, for, for being our first our guinea pig um, and um, look forward to seeing you back in rehearsal studios absolutely. indeed and look forward to maybe talking to you again when we're out on the road absolutely Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.